Uh, thank you, first of all, for the Lord Jesus. <coughs> you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all that. Now, along with him, we, you graciously, we know you're going to graciously give us all things. Um, that's overwhelming. We're grateful for um, everybody here that is interested in North Avenue. Father, we want to know how to um, glorify you most um, with our church, uh, with all the people that make up our church. We're so grateful for uh, just the, uh, the way that you have um, ordained uh, everything so far and asked today that uh, as we think through and talk about um, the biblical way to um, go about North Avenue, we ask that you would give great wisdom and, and insight. We'd once again be inspired to um, operate in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. We commit this morning to you, so grateful uh, for your countless blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you don't have one of the handouts, uh, there are some back where Ian's at uh, in the back if you need one, but we sh you should have three handouts. Each person should have three little handouts. And uh, if you can find the one that says nine marks of a healthy church, uh, the single page handout with front and back, if you wouldn't mind flipping to the back of that sheet first, we're going to kind of go, it's a little bit out of order, but we want to start uh, with the topic of membership first, and that's number six here on this list. Uh, these, these nine marks are based on Mark Dever's book by the same name, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and uh, these are nine principles that we believe are very important for a healthy local church to have. And so we're going to just jump right in with uh, number six, and if you have a Bible, could you guys open up to Hebrews 13? The last chapter of Hebrews, verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17. <clears throat> Greg, could you read number six for us on the nine marks sheet? And then Hebrews 13, 17? Yeah. Or you want me to read that? I'll read the verse first. And then there you the, go. That's yeah. a good idea. All right. Um, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And the number six reads, Church membership is a privilege and a responsibility and needs to be regarded as such. People should only be members if they are dedicated to the church in attendance, prayer, service, and giving. To allow people to become and remain members for sentimental or other unbiblical reasons makes light of membership and may even be dangerous. Yeah, thank you. So, <clears throat> if you can look at verse 17 again at Hebrews 13, 17, <clears throat> let's, let's, let's read it one more time. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, a verse like that, what it implies is what's important about this verse, because it implies that all Christians are supposed to be accountable to leaders. And it can't mean that every Christian is accountable to every elder in every church. It can't mean that. That doesn't make any sense. So clearly it's saying that we as believers should submit to the authorities, the, the leaders of a local church, a particular body of Christ, and that those leaders are responsible for those particular souls over which they have to give an account. And why that's important is um, very often people think of church membership as sort of like, well, you know, I'll, I'll pick the church I want to go to depending on how I feel that week. Um, I've often compared it to choosing restaurants. <laughs> like... This week, I feel like Italian food. Next week, I feel like Mexican food or whatever it might be. You know, we, we just kind of switch based on our tastes. And I'll be honest, there was a time in college where I treated church exactly like that. I would go to a church depending on, you know, I like the music here. I like the sermon here. I like this there. You know, I like the community here. And I would just jump around. For, for years, I was just sort of hopping around church to church depending on the Sunday. And I was really a consumer rather than a contributor to the church. And, you know, at a restaurant, if somebody spills something, I'm not going to clean it up. The waiter or waitress will clean it up. Or, you know, if there's a problem, you deal with someone else who works there. A paid, a paid professional will deal with what's going on. And I'm just sort of, you know, benefiting from what's going on, but I'm not really contributing to what's happening. Whereas uh, the illustration we've used in the past is a, think of like a soccer team, even like a rec league soccer team. I really do think that rec league soccer has a better understanding of membership than oftentimes churches do. 
what, what do you all think about that? Explain that a little bit, the illustration of the soccer team. Why, why is it you think sometimes that, that's a better illustration of membership than sometimes we see in churches? Well, I'll say it's because in a soccer team, everybody's got to play. Everybody's on the field. Everybody's active. Everybody's participating. Um, and it's, I mean, you have a few people switching in and out, you know, sitting on the sidelines. But every, you know, every kid's in there and they're happy to be out there and they're just ready to go and kick the ball. And they're glad that everybody knows who's on the team and who's not on the team. You yes, know, there, there's a, a roster. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, pe- people know who's there for practice, who's there for the game. If someone's missing, everyone's aware of that. You know, what's wrong? Mm-hmm. Why, why is this person not there? Are they sick? That, that kind of, there's, there's this mutual accountability and re- responsibility. And I, I mean, I don't mean to be dramatic here, but would, would you all agree that literally rec league soccer seems to have higher standards for membership and accountability than some churches? I mean, that's a sad truth. Like, mm-hmm. if you don't show up for middle school practice, it's like, on the phone, where, where is so-and-so today? But church, it's like someone stops coming for months at a time, maybe, and we hardly even maybe notice. So the, the, we, we want to have a, a high level of accountability, love, responsibility that we have for one another. Sometimes people will say a church is like, um, sometimes people don't say this, but sometimes church is set up where the members are like the, the people in the audience watching the game, and the, the, the kind of the paid professionals are the ones playing the game on the field. That's not right. Well, why is that not a helpful analogy, the idea that the members watch in the stadium and then only the paid professionals are the ones playing on the field? Well, it's unbiblical. I mean, it's, you know, Scripture's, scripture's picture of the Christian is one of participation um, in the life of the church, um, participation in everything that God has, and it's constantly pictured as a community mm-hmm. um, of people doing this together. I mean, the whole book of Hebrews is about you know, the importance of together persevering in the faith. It's not you do this all by yourself or whatever. It's, it's a together thing. I um, mean, the, the, the New Testament pictures of the church as a body, um, you know, uh, and all that. It's like, and Paul in 1 Corinthians talks a lot about that. You know, every member needs the other members. And there, there's no such thing as, you know, um, a non-contributing member to the church. Some people are going to have some gifts, some are going to have other gifts, but everybody has something to give, something mm-hmm. to do, something to participate in. Um, and there's really no, no idea of a Christian who just sits back and doesn't do anything. Yeah, Greg, you remind me, uh, Ephesians 4.11, mm. and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So it's not like the four of our jobs to do the ministry, it's to equip the saints to do the ministry. And, and that would just make sense to multiplications a lot. If there's 117 folks doing ministry, that's a whole lot better than just four of us. And and just just, just give, give Josh Chronic as an example, <clears throat> where oh, he's man. not on staff with our church, but talk about how, he's just, how he ministers to others, yeah, and he, 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 Haley both. Oh, yeah, they're just such a, and, and Josh, and I would say, you could say this across the board with so many of our folks, just pouring into so many of the, that the four of us aren't seeing these young guys, but he described his house as a sanctuary for a bunch of these young guys that really are being discipled well, and we see them thriving, and it's under Josh's ministry and Haley's. Well, and now Lucy's, uh, you know, he's <laughs> just got, yeah, he just has such an incredible ministry. And so we want to pour into Josh like crazy, but the guys that he's reaching uh, in a whole different way than we would be able to do uh, because he's muscly and he <laughs> puts those guys through a, uh, a, a thorough workout, but even more thorough of a spiritual uh, workout where they're memorizing scripture, they're holding each other accountable, they're keeping um, each other in line in a whole different way than we could, and uh, so I, it just makes it just makes complete sense, even logically, that it would be the so much more gets done if um, you know you have 117 people doing the job. I just say, I would just say. Um Grant Crane, who, he, he became a Christian at our church. He thought he was a Christian when he came, mm-hmm. was a nominal Christian, and he was converted in the lab with his gloves on. As you've, you've said, <laughs> listening to a sermon, and he's got these chemicals, and he has to, like, he, he started weeping, and he can't touch his face because of his gloves, so he ran and cleaned up in the bathroom, and he's converted. But there in that lab is Caitlin, Caitlin, uh, Caitlin Cato at the time. She's an atheist, but there is Grant, and he, like, you're not going to go to that lab. We're not going to that lab. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be around Caitlin. But Grant was. He's around Caitlin. 
and pushes her hard about, like, one of the first times after he became a Christian, he pushed her hard on Christianity, and that began sort of her coming to our church, and over time, she's converted, and her husband's converted. I mean, that, that's just equipping this states for the work of ministry. We're, we're not going to be in that lab, but Grant was there. And now, Caitlin, oh, yeah. she's equipping her lab. other people. Oh, yeah. No. You know, in, in the way she's <laughs> on fire, teaching other young ladies, um, and incredible. Yeah. So it, all of a sudden, Grant's the grandpa and maybe great-grandpa spiritually mm-hmm. of, uh, of some other people. That's right. And yeah. although uh, Jose and Shannon are no longer part of our church, they moved away with his work uh, to Gwinnett, right? They went mm-hmm. to Gwinnett. And uh, when they were here, Jose uh, was uh, a nominal Christian. He wasn't genuinely converted. He found out later. But he kind of thought, he said he was a Christian. You know, he would come to church some. But the, what got him to come to our church was Manuel. He worked with Manuel, who's also, they've also moved away a couple years ago. But Manuel was a member of our church. And Jose saw that Manuel did not gossip at work in the lab, right? It was in the mm-hmm. same kind of lab as, mm-hmm. as Grant. And uh, he just noticed that Manuel was different. He had a joy. He wasn't gossipy. All the other people were gossiping and slandering people. And he's like, what is about this guy? I don't get it. And Manuel shares his faith, invites him to church. Jose and Shannon start coming to our church. And then one Sunday on the front row, Man, uh, Jose just breaks down and is converted in the middle of a church service, is, is deeply converted and becomes a believer and just now is just tearing it up for Christ. And he's ministering to kids where he's teaching now in Gwinnett. And uh, just the, that's, this is not the trained professionals. This is just every member has got an amazing job to do. And wherever God has you is where God wants you to minister. And there are amazing things that can come from that. If you're a weight trainer, personal trainer like Josh uh, Chronic. That the Lord can use that in amazing ways. Sam and Carrie Kazimi, who are members of our church and were baptized here, neither of them were Christians three years ago. And Sam is being trained by Josh Chronic, and they're doing weight training, and Josh buys him a Bible for Christmas. Not every weight trainer buys you a Bible for Christmas, but this weight trainer does. And Sam says, okay, as a favor to, to you know, Josh, he's my friend, I'm going to start reading the Gospels. And he's like, all right, he reads Matthew. He's like, that's, that's okay. He reads Mark. He's like, that seemed kind of similar as the last one, but okay, I'll, re- I'll keep going. He reads Luke. He gets to the crucifixion account in Luke's gospel, breaks down crying because he said he realized in that moment that his sin had crucified Christ. He's radically converted. About six months later or so, four months later, his wife, uh, Carrie, is converted seeing Sam's transformation. That came from a personal trainer doing the work of ministry at, his, at, his, at the place he works out. So, I mean, th- this, the, the work of ministry is for all saints, all believers, and that's what our church should be about is that all of us are participating in that work. You've done a good job, Mark, I think, of helping us to understand that uh, your ministry is wherever you're at all day. You know, that's the real, in your jobs and with your families. And so that's partly why we don't want folks to always be right here. We want you to be ministering wherever you are because that's the the influence that God's given you. Providentially, he has put you um, at the funeral home, at Madison County on a soccer field, wherever it is to be able to um, impact folks for the sake of the gospel. And so we would love to do the best we can to equip you to do that. And that's a huge joy. What's convicting about that Hebrews passage is we're accountable for that. That's, that's on us if that's not happening. And, uh, and so that's when I read that or every time we think about that, I think... You know, we have to take that job seriously, and so that would include, you know, accountability, church discipline, if needed, whatever it would take to, uh, um, to equip the saints. This is why all those passages in the New Testament that say one another are so important. Love one another. Show kindness to one another. Forgiving one another as God has forgiven you in Christ. So the, the one another's only makes sense if everyone is doing this work. It, all of us are the ones who are called to do that. Anything else on membership there? Before, well, I mean, obviously, we'll talk more about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say the privilege part. I mean, it's a responsibility. We would just, Jerry, you talked about it. I mean, for us, we we're going to stand before God for every single member of our church. Right? So it's a very weighty thing. But then the members of our church have a responsibility. Like, we're going to go through the covenant, and you're going to, like, fold your life into the church. As a responsibility, but I would say it's just a huge privilege. And like Mark and I both, when we became Christians, it wasn't, we didn't see church as important as it should have been in our lives. We, like the preaching of the word, that's what we love, but then the folding our life in, we mm-hmm. didn't do as much. But then when you fold your life in, like you get around the Grant Cranes, you get around the Josh Cranes, you see them doing ministry, you, you get around them, you, you love them. I'm, I've told this story many times, but our first discussion group, we, same group of people, week in and week out, keep seeing the same 10 people basically. And it's like, I love these people. After like a couple months, I, just, I genuinely felt like I love them. You pray with them, they pray for you. What? I mean, it's just, oh man, you're just robbing yourself so much if you don't, you know, fold, your, fold yourself in. So what a privilege it is to be, to be a part of a local church body, you know. 
All right, so we're going we're to go to number, it's number seven on the list here. It's right underneath it is biblical church discipline. And if, if biblical church membership is strange to some churches, th- this next one is very strange in our culture. It, it is often not perceived as love, but it is a kind of real love. Um, Scott, can you read the description for number seven there? Yeah. Discipline guides church membership. The church has the responsibility to judge the life and teaching of the membership since they can negatively impact the church's witness of the gospel. Leadership need to be firm and disciplined as this is an expression of love to the congregation. So if you could turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 18, we'll look at one of the most important passages on this topic in the whole of Scripture. For, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 18. And let, let, I'll, just, I'll just read through this. Uh, we'll start in verse 12 with the parable of the lost sheep, which I think is connected to this. So Matthew 18, let's start in verse 12. Jesus is speaking. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, stop there. You see in context, if, if, a, if, if, if to use a, mem- a local church, say you have a hundred members, like a hundred sheep, right? Your local church. If one member, one member, just one wanders astray. We can't just ignore. We, we can't just say, oh, it's just one person. It's not a big deal. Jesus says, no, we leave the 99. We go after the one to win them back. Verse 15, supplies it to church. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there there am I among them. Greg, can you just break down briefly what's going on in this passage? Yeah, yeah. So I want to say at the outset, the the goal of church discipline is bringing someone back, is restoration. I mean, I hope that's clear based on um, the parable that Mark read um, about seeking out the one. Um, And then Jesus kind of gives like real hands and feet to to what that looks like um, in actuality. And so church discipline, you look at verse 15, this this is the process Jesus lays out. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. You don't need to involve anyone else. It's just you and that one person. Um, This is tough in a social media age because we want to air every grievance. Um, But you go to that person, you try to work it out. You know, if there's, like Jesus says, if there's, if they've sinned, you, you point that out. You try to, you know, bring them to a point of confession and repentance. And if that happens, it's done, it's over, you're back together, and that's it. You go on together, life in the church. But if they don't listen to that rebuke, if they don't listen to a, a loving Christian brother or sister saying, hey, what you're doing, this is wrong, this is sin, um, you need to get out of it. If they won't listen to the one, Jesus says, bring several more with you. And the reason, again, reason for that, he's drawing from Old Testament um, ideas as well, is that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there's not just one person saying, oh, this, this person's in sin, we need to do something about it. You want to bring more along so that you have uh, more people to affirm that or even deny that, depending. Mm -hmm. Um, But when this one brother or sister brings two or three others and they see the same thing, they get the same result. They're trying to to lovingly bring this this professing brother or sister back from sin um, and they won't respond. Then it's the responsibility to take it to the entire church, the assembly um, of, of the people. Um, and so that's when the whole church is made aware of the situation. This person is living in unrepentant sin. Now, I want to make sure I say this. That's not talking about like a daily struggle with sin. I mean, we all have that, that we're stuff we're fighting against, different desires, you know, attitudes, stuff like this. This is someone who is living in adultery, someone who's publicly getting drunk all the time, um, someone who is just using the foulest language um, while still trying to maintain um, you know, membership in the church, and then they're not going to stop using that language. We're talking about really serious public stuff like that. Um, and if, you know, we have to alert the church to that, say, all right, look, this is someone who's a member, um, and this is, we, we have tried to, to work this out. 
Uh, we've tried to, to bring them back, and they still refuse uh, the counsel. They refuse the effort. And, you know, it's, it's not necessarily just a one, two, three process. Like, number the, the, first, the first thing here, the one-on-one, the -on -one, that can happen multiple times. Often it does. The, the bringing two or more, two or three more, that can often result in multiple conversations, multiple attempts. And when, that, when it becomes obvious that that is not going to be received, that's when you have to bring it before the whole church. Um, and in that case, again, you, you let the church know, and the church as a whole tries to make some effort as the whole church to, to say to this person, this individual, we love you, we want you to stay a part of us, but if you don't, we're going to remove you from membership, which is what Jesus is talking here, which effectively means if someone will not repent of their sin, even when the whole church you know, calls them to that in love, then the church has the right from Jesus to say, we are, we are invalidating your profession of faith. We're going to treat you as a non-Christian and you're no longer as a member of the church until you repent and own your sin and you come back in faith to Christ. And that's, that's a great explanation. Verse 17, I think, gets right at what Greg's saying there. Let me read it one more time. If he refuses to listen to them, the two or three, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That means someone outside the covenant community. Yep. We, we treat them as an unbeliever. Not that we know for sure that they're not a believer, but they are acting as an unbeliever. We can mm -hmm. no longer affirm their profession of faith. And the goal is actually that that last-ditch effort would actually bring them back, that they would, they would see how miserable it is outside the church, and that they would come back uh, into the arms of Christ and repent of their sin. It just, I just I always have to add this. L let me add the little confusing part at the end, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, what that means is, if the church is acting in obedience to Jesus on this, heaven agrees with earth's declaration. Words, if a church as a whole votes to remove the person, heaven is agreeing with that church's actions because they're being done in accordance with, 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 with Jesus' decree. So what you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. If you, if you declare someone, uh, you know, we believe this person's a believer, then, then there's, a, there's, a, there's a confirmation. Not that we save or unsave people, but just the idea that we line up with Jesus' teaching. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Heaven agrees with earth. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, I've often said that verse is almost always used out of context for like a prayer meeting or something. Well, Jesus being in the midst of you and agreeing with you is referring to a church excommunicating someone. When, so, when, when a church removes someone from membership in accord with Jesus' teaching, Jesus is in their midst and he is in agreement with what they're doing. Heaven and earth are in agreement. So it's not just like a sentimental verse about Jesus being near us, although that's true. He's with us to the end of the age. In this context, it's referring to him agreeing with excommunication if done biblically. Let's go to one other text real quick. First Corinthians 15. Five. First Corinthians 5, to your right, a few books. First Corinthians chapter 5. This is probably the other most thorough uh, text on this issue. And Scott, could you just start reading in the first verse? It has um, a really awkward and embarrassing sin that this man was committing in the church, but uh, let's see what, how Paul deals with this kind of sexual immorality. Okay, First Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's, that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Pause there. If you look at one more time, I want to read verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, this is a church gathering where, I mean, this is like a members meeting. It's like where all the members are gathered in the name of the Lord. Paul says, his spirit is present with them in the power of the Lord Jesus. Remember, Jesus is with us when two or three are gathered for this occasion. Jesus is there. Verse five, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Delivering someone to Satan may sound really strange, but he's simply saying, take them out of the realm of protection of the church, move them outside of the church into the realm of Satan. He's the God of this age. Paul calls him lowercase g. He's the ruler of this age. So you hand them over to the realm of Satan. And the goal is that that person becomes so miserable in, say, his adultery or his drunkenness or his whatever, his unbelief, that he, he, he realizes this is miserable. And then his flesh is going to be dealt with and he's going to come back and repent and his soul will be saved on the day of the Lord. So the goal, like you said, Greg, is restoration and, and repentance. Other thoughts on this part of the text? 
Uh, I mean, I, I, Jerry, you've been good about talking about like this is the loving thing to do. You want to just say a little bit about that, like in terms of discipline? Yeah. Like, oh, I think it is the most loving thing. Well, it's not loving to just let someone go in their sin. I mean, I'd certainly not. If I'm off on something, I need someone who loves me deeply, my wife, my family, one of these guys, one of you guys, to come after me, right? That's just what we do, the lost sheep. It's such a good, I love that, that uh, making that connection again, Mark, is so good. There's no one, no loving shepherd's just going to let that sheep go run around on the road. Whoa, the truck just about hit the sheep. That's not what you want. And so the most loving thing we can do is to plead with uh, the, <clears throat> someone who says they're a believer, someone who's part of our flock, to, um, to come back to Christ, to repent. And that's what we would want, and all of us would want that. And so um, it is the most loving. It is so hard to do it. And it is a sad thing when we have to come to this point where you just have to say, we, there, there's no point. But going back to your soccer analogy, even like if, if some kid's not coming to practice, if some kid's absolutely uh, against the team in the way they're acting, they get removed from the team, you know, even in middle school soccer. And just, just to give another sports analogy, just take like cross country. I don't know if anyone in the room's done cross country before. I certainly have not. But <laughs> I, I do cross Cross the yard. That's about as far as I get. But uh, cross country. So if, so if someone's running on a cross country team, there's a big world of difference between the, the, the guy or girl who's running on a high school cross country team and stumbles, right, and trips and gets back up and keeps running. That's all of us. James 3, we all stumble in many ways. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about perfection here. We're not talking about getting excommunicated for imperfect performance. Mm-hmm. That's all of us are imperfect. So yeah, we stumble. All of us stumble. We skin our knees spiritually. We, we sin. We, we get back up. We keep running. What we're talking about is a person who says, they're in the middle of the race, and they stop. They walk back to the, you know, the, the, the bus, of the school's bus, and they go, I'm not doing any more racing. Like, I'm done. Well, then are you going to stay on the team? If that's your – no, like, eventually you're going to have to be removed. If, if, if your goal is I'm not even going to get out there and run, mm-hmm. then we can't affirm that you're part of the team. You're no longer actually trying. Stumbling is no problem. Just get back up and keep running. But quitting – Jesus, just turning from Jesus, turning from basic truth. That's where we got a problem. Let me add one more piece to this. So Jerry just said it's most loving for the person. It's tough love. It's severe mercy, right? It's most loving for the person. It's a wake-up call. But number two, it's most loving for the local body of Christ. Because think about this. Let's say that you have couples committing adultery and no one does anything about it. Let's say you have couples unbiblically divorcing and remarrying in the church. No one does anything. Boyfriends and girlfriends are just living together, sleeping together. No one calls it. There's public drunkenness week in and week out. No one calls it. Everyone knows about it. You know what that's going to create more of? More of those same things, right? In the church, it's, it's guaranteed. If you just let things, if you just let people divorce for no reason, and re- well, then other people go, I guess my marriage is not that important because the, the, the pastors didn't do anything about that. So I guess I can do what I want over here. So it ends up, he's about to mention this, it's going to spread like leaven through, through a lump. Like it's, it's going it's to lead to corruption. And so it loves the church to do this. Mm-hmm. Number three, it's loving to the world. Mm-hmm. The, the number one accusation, and the world's very unfair in the way that it assesses the church, but the world says the church is full of hypocrites. Well, here is the way to solve that. If there is true, full-blown hypocrisy, it must be removed from the church eventually if the person does not repent. So it actually guards the glory of Jesus publicly before the world, his holiness. It, it loves the church by not letting sin fester and spread like leaven. And it also loves the individual because that person is about to go off a cliff and we're trying to call them back. So it's, it's actually the most loving thing for every single person involved, even though no one today seems to think it is loving. It looks too harsh and it looks too judgmental. Uh, Scott, can you keep reading ver- yeah. verse 6 to the end of the chapter? Uh, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now just pause. So you see, there it is loving for the body of Christ to remove that leaven. It's crystal clear. It's loving not just for the person who will be saved in verse 5, but for the local body in verses 6 and 7 and 8 who need that removal. Sorry. I write to you and I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? 
Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Mm. Any of y'all want to talk about the verses 9 through 12? Very important mm-hmm. verses and countercultural. Well, it, I think it, it, puts it puts the perspective, um, it, it clarifies the perspective we're supposed to have. Um, you know, walking with Christ does not mean that we avoid anybody who is living in any kind of sin, um, who struggles with sin in any way. He's talking about... Um, someone who bears the name yeah, of brother. someone who bears the name brother, who's a, a fellow church member, makes a profession of faith. If they are living in unrepentant sin, then in our, within our church, that's the one that we have to say no to. But he's not saying we remove ourselves out of the world because how are we going to win people to Jesus? The world's filled with sinners, who, people who are dominated by all the sins that Paul mentions in verse 11. And I mean, I think that's why he mentions this. Like, those are the people who need Jesus. Those are the people who need the gospel. We don't separate ourselves from them. And it's not like that we join with them in what they're doing. But it's like, if we remove ourselves from any interaction with them, we're not going to, we can't win them. He's like, but it's, if someone claims to be a believer and they're still characterized primarily by these things, then that's just like, look, we can't affirm them as fellow believers. We can't affirm them as, as, their profession of faith as being valid anymore because they're living in a way that's completely contrary to it. We expect the world to live contrary to the gospel because they don't know Jesus. But we do expect Christians, professing Christians, to live in accordance with the gospel because that's what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, look at verses 12 and 13 again. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's the Mm non-believer, someone who doesn't say that they're a Christian. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Just, just let me add a little something here that's not immediately obvious, perhaps. Do you see how Paul speaks of those inside the church and those outside the church? That's obvious, right? That implies church membership. Because you've got to know who is inside, who is actually officially part of the church, and who is outside, who's not officially part of the church. So there's a distinction there between those two categories, and Paul says we treat those two groups in a different way. There's a different way of dealing with those two uh, different groups. Any other thoughts on that passage? I think Greg pointed out it's got to be it's public sin. It's not just having a bad attitude, no. or it's just like all the. But it is, and that list that right there uh, hit me again of just when it is an unrepentant and um, just going the wrong way, getting back in the bus and saying I'm I'm not living for Jesus anymore. I'm going to go. Okay, let me add two things that are more controversial, perhaps. Oh, this is already controversial, but let me add two more pieces. Number one would be even affirming public sin. So if someone says, I think abortion is a good thing, that would actually put someone under church discipline. So if, if a member of our church said, I support abortion, I think abortion is, is a good thing, I think it's something that we should have more of in our country, I, I, even if I've never had one, I support it. Or if someone said same-sex relationships, I think that those are good things, I support and endorse transgenderism, I support and endorse same-sex relationships, I think they can be God-glorifying. All that stuff would fall under the same kind of serious kind of warning as, as, as other, if someone said adultery was okay we would treat it very seriously. If someone said lying was okay, what in the world is going on here? It's okay. So that, that's one important thing on that topic. Greg, do you have a comment on that? Yeah, that, it made me think of in Romans 1 at the end when Paul yes. talks about those who are given over to a depraved mind. It says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If we are, if we are giving approval to things that are clearly sin. And God dishonoring, they go against his design for creation, his design for marriage, his design for the family, his, his clear design for like just human beings. If, we're, if, if a professing believer starts endorsing teaching and practice, they might not do it themselves, like you said, but if they're endorsing that, they're doing exactly what Paul says uh, these, these reprobates in Romans 1 are doing, is they're giving approval to the things that bring the wrath of God. And if anyone who professes Christ is doing that, then by nature, they have just completely called their whole profession of faith into question. Because if you truly know Christ and are walking with him, you won't, you won't approve, at least long term. You might get confused and struggle, but you're not going to stay in a position where you are affirming as okay what God clearly says is sin and brings his wrath. And the other thing that's controversial, I think we need to be more and more clear on this, and we've talked about this a lot, one of the, this is so sad, I have seen this happen, we, where, a, I mean, I, I know this, I mean, I know of a story where this happened, I know the person personally, where the wife apparently commits adultery, you know, she, she commits adultery on the husband. Then the marriage falls apart. She's a member of a church. 
the church allows her to simply remove her membership quietly. So she removes, she removes her own membership quietly in the midst of all this chaos, and then she just goes to another church. That, Jerry, a word about that, because I feel like that's a major tendency. It's, it's, we kind of joke, like, it's not, like kind of quit before you get fired kind of approach. We're like, I'm just yeah. going to quickly remove my name, and then I'm not going to have to deal with any of the discipline. Thought on, on that. Well, once again, it's just not loving to, to let her, in this case, or him, do that. That's not, we're not going after the lost sheep. You just can't, uh, they just can't quit and say, oh, well, it's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. That's their, their eternity is at stake. The purity of the church, like you said, is at stake. The hypocrisy that other, the unbeliever would see and say, well, I don't need Jesus to act like that. I'm acting like that already. You know, that's just so all three groups that were concerned about lose on a, on a situation like that. And so, yeah, that, that can't be, we are committed to our members. We're not just going to let them quit the team without going after them. So, so like, just to put it really directly, like, the ways in which people uh, cease to be members of, of a church that was trying to be biblical, one way is if a person simply transfers their membership to another faithful church. No problem. We've had people in, in this city move to other churches, even in Athens, and like, if they preach the gospel, awesome. I can mention several wonderful people who've been members of our church who've transferred to other churches in the area. That's great. We've got no problem with that whatsoever. That's fine. Uh, if, if someone uh, goes to heaven, that's one way in which they could leave membership at our church. If they go to heaven, another thing would be um, if someone's like a missionary in an unreached place where there's no local church yet, th- that would be a different scenario. But in terms of just someone leaving our church and not doing anything, that's not really one of the options. And there has to be a consistency to all of that. Any, any last thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it, and we might talk about this when we look at the, the, uh, the covenant, but you don't just show up at a church and say, I'm a member now. You right. don't just join yourself into a church. Like the church as a whole affirms your profession of faith. We, the church gets to know you and says, yes, we, we want you to be a part of us. As a church, we're welcoming you in and we're affirming you as a part of this. You can't do that without the church you know, doing that. I mean, you, you know the process we have here. You know, the elders, we go through this. We get to know you. We recommend for the membership. And then the membership affirms and votes, you know, folks in. And if that's how you come in, that's also how you go. Mm-hmm. There, there's no, if you don't come in on your own, you can't just leave on your own because that's not how church membership works. It's a two-way it's handshake. A two, yes, it's a two-way handshake. And I know you might have a little more to say on that, um, like in terms of an illustration, but it, it, you, you don't just come in any time you choose, and you can't just leave any time you choose. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, on that note, let's switch to another handout. It's, it's the one that says, Biblical Obligations of Elders and Members at North Avenue Church. And, Scott, could you just—I know it's a lot of reading here, but can you, we're going to go ahead and read. This, the first page is simply to the elders, the elders' responsibility, which is the four of us. We are the four elders at the church. And uh, so, this first part is for us. The, the next couple parts will be for all members. But, Scott, if you could start reading there. Sure. biblical obligations of the elders to North Avenue Church body. As shepherds and overseers of a local church, elders are entrusted with teaching, protecting, leading, equipping, and caring for the corporate church body and her individual members. The following is an overview of the requirements for elders as spelled out within the Scriptures. The elders' covenant to help train up future elders and deacons according to the criteria assigned to them in the Scriptures. The elders' covenant to prayerfully seek wisdom from the Lord in guiding our church community and stewarding her resources to the best of our ability based on our study of the Scriptures and our following of the Holy Spirit who inspired all Scripture. The elders' covenant to care for the church and seek her growth in love, truth, holiness, and unity in the gospel. The elders' covenant to provide teaching and counsel from the whole of Scripture, whether that unchanging teaching is considered in season or out of season by our ever-changing culture. The elders' covenant to equip the members of the church for the work of ministry. The elders' covenant to be on guard against false teachers and teachings. The elders' covenant to lovingly lead the process of biblical church discipline when necessary for the glory of God, the good of the one disciplined, and the health of the church as a whole. And the elders' covenant to set an example and join members in fulfilling the obligations of church membership stated below. Any comment on that? Well, I want to make sure the last one... Um, we stress like, yes, we are the elders, the, the, the church leaders, but that doesn't exempt us from basic Christian faithfulness that we're calling everyone else to. Like, yeah. we hope to, you know, by God's grace, be some kind of example of walking with Christ and of, of faithfulness. But like, you know, the command to share the gospel, 
you know, if, if we're equipping the saints for the work of ministry, well, that doesn't mean we don't share the gospel too, that we're not out trying to do ministry as we're able as well. We're all in this together in that sense. Like whatever we are calling the church to is what we're also calling ourselves to. It's not like we're up here just dispensing all this stuff and you guys go do it all while we, no, we're involved in that too. Um, and so, you know, and, I, and I, I say that because a lot of, there's just this, this mindset, I've seen it in a lot, of, a lot of churches is, like you said, you've got the professionals, you've got this, um, you know, pastors do this, everyone else. Yeah, there, there are roles unique to us as elders, but in terms of basic Christian living and faithfulness, we're just where you guys are in terms of that. Oh, that's true. All right, Scott, pick us up yeah. here with the next part. Biblical <clears throat> obligations of the members to the North Avenue Church body. As those who have, have experienced the grace of a life changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to reflect the character of Christ through the pursuit of godly attitudes and actions and the rejection of those that are contrary to Scripture. The Bible refers to this reality as living by the Spirit. The requirements of this membership covenant are in no way intended as an addition to the biblical obligations of a believer. Rather, this document functions primarily as an accessible yet non-exhaustive explanation of what the Scriptures teach about the obedience that saving faith produces. So this next part is for every single member of the church. Yes, which is beginning here. It says, I covenant to submit to the authority of the Scriptures as the final and decisive word on all issues of life and doctrine, of behavior and belief. I covenant to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ through a regular practice of the spiritual disciplines, including Bible reading, prayer, and loving fellowship with the other members of our local church. I covenant to follow the command and example of Jesus by participating in the ordinances prescribed to his church by being baptized after my conversion as a public display of the truth of my union with Christ in his death and resurrection, by regularly remembering and celebrating the person and work of Christ through communion. I covenant to regularly participate in the life of North Avenue Church by attending weekly services, engaging in gospel-centered community, and serving the other members of this church. As Hebrews 10 says, we commit to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. I covenant to wisely steward the resources God has given me, including time, talents, spiritual gifts, and finances. This includes giving that is sacrificial, cheerful, and voluntary. I covenant to strive by the Holy Spirit's grace and power to walk in holiness in all areas of life. As an act of worship to Jesus Christ, I make it my aim to put my ungodly attitudes and actions to death by the Spirit's strength. Below are a few examples of actions addressed in the Scriptures. I will practice complete chastity unless married, and if married, complete fidelity within heterosexual and monogamous marriage. This means, among other things, that regardless of my marital status, I will pursue purity and fight against lust and all sexual temptation toward immoral practices such as adultery, premarital sex, homosexual behavior, pornography, and sexually perverted speech. If married, I will seek to preserve the gift of marriage and agree to walk through steps of marriage reconciliation at North Avenue Church, including meeting with the elders before pursuing divorce after before pursuing divorce from my spouse. I will refrain from illegal drug use and drunkenness. I will fight my temptation to gossip, slander, and cause disunity in the church. I will forgive from my heart offenses committed against me by others because I have been forgiven of so much more by Jesus. And then I covenant to use my freedom in Christ to best serve and love others while resisting the temptation to abuse my liberty by presenting stumbling blocks to another. I covenant to submit to the discipline of God through His Holy Spirit by following the biblical procedures for church discipline where sin is evident in another, the hope of such discipline being repentance and restoration, receiving righteous and loving discipline when approached biblically by fellow believers. I covenant to do the following when I sin, confess my sin to God and to fellow believers, repent and seek help to put my sin to death. I covenant to submit to the elders and other appointed leaders of the church and diligently strive for unity and peace within the church. And I covenant to do the following should I leave the church for righteous reasons, to notify the elders, to seek another church with which I can carry out my biblical responsibilities as a believer. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot there. Uh, any reflections from you guys? <clears throat> we're not saying that uh, in every single one of these areas we're absolutely perfect like we've gotten to, but the issue is, is there a real desire to pursue this standard and to repent mm -hmm. when we're falling short? I any comments on any of those items there? I think it's just good to read them. I think it's just good to come back. I mean, just, these are just mm -hmm. the normal Christian requirement. You read them as a whole like that. I mean, we all we have the Scriptures showing it's backing mm -hmm. in Scripture. It's just good, to, a reminder that, I mean, this is what we're called. It's a high calling to live as a Christian. That's just, that's just Christian living. I think. And we like would that. like, anyway, I love what you're saying there, Scott, because I got the same thing when you read them. You, 
they're, they're exhilarating, they're thrilling to be able to uh, be that to one another, love one another, Mark, like you were talking about. And, uh, and, and we want to be like that. If there is a, a problem, we want to be those that uh, you can come to, that someone could come to, and, and we can help out, and we can, and we can pray, and we can um, uh, work for reconciliation if it happens to be something in a marriage, or we can, we can work for those things and, and, and meet together and process and, and, and figure it out, because that's what we're called to do um, as a church body, and so we, we want to be that, whether than, um, you know, rather than someone going to a counselor, you know, that doesn't really love them like we do. They, they're, they're just a, a paid person to try to handle a problem. Uh, well, we feel like we would like to be uh, that to somebody if that's what the, it's needed. Also, too, you see on the, on the very back, um, there's a place where we mm. sign our names to this. We're not unique in asking for folks to, to sign their name to this. And that, that's just a way of really kind of concretely expressing your agreement with the covenant um, and your, you know, desire to fulfill the obligations of it as best as you're able. Um, it's also for accountability. I mean, like, it, it's a big deal to be a member of the local church. I mean, if we understand what the church is, it's a, you know, it's the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, it's the his, God's people, it's His temple. Um, it's, you know, the illustration Mark used a while back, it's like a little outpost, a colony of heaven. I mean, we're representing heaven in our midst, in a sense, um, as a local church body. And so it's a big deal to say, that's the commitment I'm going to have. I mean, I, I don't think that's going to be an issue for you guys. I think you already understand that. But the, another aspect of signing is it's like, I'm putting my name to all that I'm affirming mm-hmm. and that, yes, this is who I want to be. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to be a part of. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's good to remember that. I'm, we, I've, we all signed this when we, when we did this and it's just like, you know, I, I want my name to be to this. I want, you know, for Greg Rents, I want people to think of me in light of what I've committed to in this. And that's something I think we all should. Um, and so that is just, it's, it's a way of accountability and it's a way of really, I think, emphasizing the gravity and the weightiness of what we're committing to. I mean, it's a glorious, amazing thing, but we're doing it before God. We're doing it before his people. And so it's, it's important to do that, I think. Okay, we're not quite ready for our break. We're almost, we got maybe about 10 more minutes and we'll take a brief break here uh, to split this up. But in the meantime, let's go back to our nine marks single sheet, the front and back sheet. And we're going to start now at the top. I know we went out of order on this sheet, but let's start at the beginning of the nine marks of a healthy church. <clears throat> Greg, could you read expositional preaching, the first one? And then I'd like Scott to say a word about why we do this. Yeah, okay, expositional preaching. Expositional preaching, otherwise known as expository preaching, is the investigation of a particular passage of Scripture whereby the pastor carefully explains the meaning of a passage and then applies it to the members of the congregation. The point of a sermon, then, takes the point of a particular passage. This is an opposition to the topical preaching showcased in many evangelical churches where Bible passages are woven together to support a pre-existing point. Scott? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why we do expositional preaching is if it become hobby horse thing, which we talked about, which Jerry like made fun of you before, where when Martin first became a Christian, he had what you say one and a half hobby horses or something. Like Mark had these big things that he committed to, maybe three things. Yeah. He kept repeating again and again and again. Well, if that's the case, then Mark's just going to be preaching the same text again oh, and again man. and again and again. Years of it. It was years of it. Well, and I still just have one. That's the problem. It's like I made Mark fun of Mark for three, and I'm still on the same one that I'm trying to work on. But. I mean, we all, all of us have probably favorite texts and we'd all be preaching it. I mean, I said I would be doing Redeeming the Time like every time. That's, I love that topic. I would just do it over and over again. But since we're committed to expositional preaching, like I never would have chosen the genealogy of Jesus to preach on. But Mark assigned it to me. And then when he assigned it to me, I just thought, like, how am I going to preach this thing? Like, there's no way. And I mean, Alistair Begg just said he always skipped it. He said, why do I always skip Matthew 1, 1 to 17? And he said he went and read it. And he was like, that's why, that's why I skip it. But I'm so glad Mark gave it to me. Because when you study the Bible, all Scripture is, is inspired by God. It's profitable. Every single bit of the Bible is profitable. So it forces you, forces us to study difficult texts. And it 
it opens up the congregation to the whole counsel of God. I mean, we grew up with my dad who preached oh, yeah. expositional preaching. He, he picked a New Testament, New Testament book, Old, Old Testament. Testament, New, New Testament, Testament, Old Testament. Testament. <laughs> that's just, he was just like a machine, <laughs> just back and forth. And, and lots of Old Testament books. I mean, he went through how many books of the Bible? He, he went through Isaiah. He went, he went through like Isaiah. these massive, hard books. Yeah. Spent years on it. And you're getting, though, all of this. You're getting all mm. these texts. You're getting Isaiah and all, all of that through over the course of time. The congregation is going to benefit tremendously. And he went through 44 books in 44 his time books. of faith. Yeah. He preached through Incredible. 44 books of the Bible front to back. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah, I mean, wow. just think of the, the members of that church who, who were there the entire time versus somebody who's preaching topical. I mean, the difference is just the, the, the depth of learning and the theology in the life of the people because of the whole counsel of God. I mean, that's yes, what we Scott, want to be about. that's so good. I, and you have to would say, and this again, just very logical. If man, if one of us is deciding what's most important, that just happens to be what's most important to us, or it might have just been the meatloaf we had last night didn't set well, right? <laughs> but if we are looking for what God's saying, he put together scripture. That's what we believe. It's what thoroughly equips us for every good work. So let's teach the gospel just through the book of Romans because that's what God wrote for us. So I, 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 in one way, it's not really rocket science. Plus, it's a lot easier, I think. And again, this isn't the reason we do it. But Mark knows what the passage is he's teaching. He doesn't have to wonder Saturday, like, man, I wonder what people need to hear or whatever. It's whatever passage he ended at. We're going to start that next verse and we're going to go on. And it's amazing how relevant the next text yes. is pre-assigned. No one's picking it. It's just God's speaking. It's the next text. It's the next paragraph. It's amazing how relevant every paragraph ends up being to our life. Like you, you go there and you're like, wow, this is actually very much what we need to hear now. Yeah. And when you used to really like one and a half things, now <laughs> you really like everything that you've taught. Like yeah, it yeah. becomes like Matthew all of a sudden is your favorite book because that's the one you're in. Yeah, my, my dad in Bible college or seminary said that he had a professor who, like, he would start the new lecture. He'd say, Jeremiah, that's my favorite book of the Bible. He'd start preaching Jeremiah. And he'd go through it. And then the next day, it was like Isaiah. He's like, man, I think Isaiah's my favorite prophet. And then my dad's like, wait, you said it was Jeremiah. He said, well, last week I was teaching Jeremiah. This week I'm teaching Isaiah. So now it's my favorite. And that's usually whatever mm -hmm. you're teaching, you become passionate about for the time that you're teaching on it. Can I say two things on that? Drawing one from what Jerry said. <laughs> Um, preaching this way, it, it honors the Scriptures as God gave it. Mm. God gave us the Scriptures in the form that it is. And so if we want to honor God in the way He gave it, then we need to read it and preach it the way He gave it. Like take Romans, for instance. Romans is a letter. It's, it's a, a logical whole. It develops points and develops themes as you read. If we want to honor God in, in going through Romans, then we've got to start at verse 1. And we've got to understand the words and the language and the flow of thought. And we do that throughout the book. We honor it, uh, honor God by reading it and teaching it the way God gave it to us. Uh, there was a big church pastor, I'm not going to name right now, said, well, that's just cheating. That's easy. No, it's not cheating. That's, that's actually more honoring to God because it, it, it's submitting ourselves to what God actually said. It's not putting the burden on us, like you said, to be overly creative and this, that, and the other. No, we're submitting ourselves as best we can to the text of Scripture and preaching it the way God gave it. That's not cheating. That's being faithful. Number two is when we do this, it's not just being faithful to the Word, but it's training us and the congregation on how to read the Bible. And so we want what you get on Sundays and when we teach, we want that to help you when you read and study so that you can look at what, how we're handling this book and you say, okay, I, I know I heard Mark, you know, work through a passage that way. Now I'm going to work through a passage that like we want what we do to be a great encouragement to, to everyone else on how to read and study the Bible. When you're just doing topical all the time, you're just left wondering, you know, do I hear from God the way the pastor did? I didn't see that in the text. But when we just work bit by bit through it, we're, we're hopefully helping the whole church be like, wow, one, I can read this. Two, I can understand it. And man, I can get really close to God because this, it's, it's not this big deal in that sense. And, and let me just add one footnote. <clears throat> You may ask, like, well, in our Sunday school series, we have not gone through a book of the Bible the last few months. We've been dealing with a cultural, the cultural yeah. series, and some of y'all have been in there for that. In defense of that, 
there are times where there's something that's so loud in our culture, mm-hmm. it's addressed in Scripture, but it's not like a primary thing in the first century. So there are times where we really do need to focus in on something. That if it's sweeping away many people today in our culture, there's a time and a place to stop and say, okay, we're going to focus on this particular issue. We're gonna, we talked about all the different you know, issues going on in our culture, and then we want to go back to the text too. So there, mm-hmm. there, there's nothing wrong with doing topical things at times, but in the pulpit in particular, it needs to normally be working through books of the Bible, I think is the best way to go. And I think... You know, in our main Sunday gathering, like you said, with the pulpit, like that sets the foundation for how we address everything else. If we're laying the proper foundation of just working through Scripture, then whenever we address another issue, we're addressing it out of that foundation. Like we're already establishing how we need to read the text, how we need to handle the text, how we need to apply the text. And so like what we're doing in Sunday school is just an extended application of what Scripture teaches um, to particular issues that we need to address. Yeah. Okay, we'll do a couple more, and then we'll take our break. Scott, can you do a number two? Can you read biblical theology? Yeah. Number two, biblical theology <laughs> assumes that Scripture's many authors and many books are telling one story by one divine author about Christ. Pastors too often play one note when, as it has been said, the entire Bible is a beautiful symphony. Salvation is more than being saved from debt, loneliness, or a bad marriage. The gospel is even more than the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Congregations should instead be told how every passage fits into the grand storyline of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Oh, Greg, I'm putting you on the spot, but could you say a word about why is it important that we have biblical theology, understanding the whole flow of, of, of Scripture with, I guess we, we talked about progressive revelation where things mm-hmm. get clearer as you go, but any, any word on biblical theology? Yeah, I mean, one, I mean, it's, it's God's Word, but two, if God's the author, then there's going to be a unity, there's going to be a harmony. I like the word uh, symphony here. God's telling a story. God's telling a story, and we can understand what that story is through careful, like if we make use of number one, then we start to pick up on big things that are taking place, big themes. Um, obviously, you, you look at those last four things, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. If you want a way to understand how the whole Bible fits together, that's a great way to do it. But why do we say those four things? Because that's the four that Scripture gives us, kind of the four overarching categories from beginning to end of history, from you know when God first created to Revelation chapter 22, new creation, this, these are the categories that Scripture gives us to understand what's going on. Like, you know, what, why, why is the world messed up? Like, why is there so much hate, so much evil, murder, bloodshed? Why are there tornadoes, fires, floods, and calamities, disasters? Well, that gets into the fact that, well, God created, but then things got messed up through human sin, what we call the fall. And so that, that gives us a category to understand what's going on in the world. And we're still under that part. Like the fall hasn't been totally erased, but we know redemption means God is doing something to fix what got messed up. And so we're kind of in this, this in-between right now. We're in this broken world, but God started working to fix things. And we see that, you know, in the church, in our own hearts, in our own lives. Um, but again, these categories that the Bible gives us, it helps us make sense of, of what God's purposes in the world are. Because yeah, we need to understand individual texts, but God also gave those texts as part of, part of a whole book of, of texts that fit together. They tell a coherent story about who God is, who we are, what's wrong, um, how we can make, how God is making it right, how we need to respond and what's coming. And again, that, that's, that's covering a lot of ground really quickly. But what this is getting at is, yeah, the gospel of Jesus, the, the life, death and resurrection of Christ is absolutely essential and central to that. But it's, 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 it's part of what God is doing. Like it's central to the overall story. Why was the cross necessary? Why was the resurrection necessary? And so biblical theology, you know, takes the overall story and helps us be able to to make sense. Like, yes, you can affirm Jesus is this, he did that, but why was that necessary? Well, because of sin. Well, where did sin come from? Well, we have a creator, you know, who made things and we rebelled against that. And again, I've kind of already said that, but it just, it, it gives us a framework understanding how everything fits together in a big picture sense. That's good. All right, we'll do one more before our break here. Can you do number three, Skip? Yeah, biblical understanding of the gospel. There needs to be a proper understanding and necessary emphasis on the full gospel, where many contemporary churches teach that Jesus wants to meet our felt needs and give us a healthier self-image. That is not the gospel. The gospel message is that we are sinners who have rebelled against our Creator, but Jesus took the curse that was rightfully ours, and all that remains is for us to have faith in Him so God may credit Christ's righteousness to our account. When we, do, when we de-emphasize sin and damnation to make the presentation more friendly and less offensive, we cease declaring the full gospel. A word about that? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, we want to have a biblical understanding of the gospel, but also we want to have the gospel central uh, in, in our lives and in, in the church's life. And I think what I've said again and again is Jerry Bridges, who's so helpful on this, uh, talks about how people, you give people the gospel and they'll be, they'll be converted, but then you, you put the gospel on the shelf and you're removing the power to live the Christian life when you remove the gospel from their life. Well, you need the gospel. We need to come back to the gospel again and again. I mean, the full gospel. And it, every time you come back to the gospel, even just reading this again, uh, t- thinking about Jesus' righteousness, my account, like it's moving just the, just the gospel again and again. We, we need the gospel, the full gospel uh, regularly in, in our lives to, to motivate us out to live the Christian life. You know? we, we don't think the gospel is just for non-Christians. No. We think it is something mm-hmm. Christians need as a daily part of our diet uh, yes. throughout every week of our lives, every day of our lives. Any, any word about the gospel there, Jim? Well, no, it's just how he began a good work, carried it on to completion until the day of Christ. Yeah, I think it's through the gospel that he, that he does that. And uh, you know, one thing that I love about uh, being with you guys is, is hearing from you guys continually uh, the gospel. That's what I need. That's what I need today. That's what I'm going to need till I go to heaven, and uh, you know, I love that. That's that's part of what we're committed to. Okay, we're going to take a five minute break, and then we will pick back up with our last session. And then after that one, we're going to spend just about I don't know whatever time we have left, fifteen or so, twenty minutes, and we'll, we'll the elders are going to come to y'all's tables, and we're just going to share. Everyone's going to share their testimony, just brief uh, version of your testimony, and uh, then we'll be we'll we'll try to be done by about.